Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2017 AWP conference in Washington, D.C. The recording features Beth Ann Patrick, Pam Houston, Howard Allen, and Claire Vay Watkins. You will now hear Beth Ann Patrick provide introductions. Thank you all so much for being here this afternoon. We have some pretty tough competition, um, and <laughs> I, I really am glad you came here to be with us because it's a very important topic. Um, but just to speak about height for a moment, the true story that I saw Claire with her child on her hip and said to someone next to me who was very tall, didn't understand what it's like to be a short person, who is that darling little person, thinking I was going to learn the name of Claire's child. And she said, oh, that's Claire Van Watkins. <laughs> Writers. Um, so I just wanted to say hello. You might have been expecting Robin Rom, uh, the editor of Double Bind, Women Writers on Ambition, which is coming out from Liveray in April. And I just wanted to tell you all, um, before I introduce myself and our panelists, that the Norton booth does have some AREs of this. So after this panel, if you're interested and you are very, very good and very kind to them, they may give you one. And I highly recommend um, going for that opportunity. Um, and so you can get caught up on all of this. Um, my name is Beth Ann Patrick. I'm subbing in for Robin, the editor, and, um, and also an esteemed colleague. I'm based here in D.C. I'm a writer, an author, and a critic. I'm on the National Book Critics Circle board. Um, I have my latest book out. It's called The Books That Changed Our Lives. It's an anthology of interviews I did with people about books that changed their lives. What a surprise. But here I am today with these four women authors and women writers to talk about this very naughty problem of ambition. And I thought when I was coming over, ambition takes so many forms. Does this scarf make my ambition look fat? <laughs> you know, another true story, when I was doing some book events last year for this new book, I tweeted one day, I think I'm turning into Fran Lebowitz. I just bought cowboy boots and a really nice tuxedo jacket. And someone responded, or maybe you're turning into Pam Houston. <laughs> so uh, there are so many layers uh, that go into what makes up ambition. And what I want to do is introduce our four panelists and then have each of them talk to you a little bit about what their essay in this collection was like. And I'm going to start also by telling you about Robin and then telling you a little bit about this collection. Robin Rom's short story collection, The Mother Garden, was a finalist for the Penn USA Prize. Her memoir, The Mercy Papers, won a New York Times Notable Book of the Year. She is writing and curating an essay collection, Double Bind, she's done, and uh, she's on the faculty of Warren Wilson's Low Residency Program. And Double Bind is a collection of pieces by women, mostly mostly just writers and authors. There is a butcher story in here as well that's very cool. Um, and what struck me when I got the book and read it is how different all of these stories are. That's one of the things we're going to talk about. These are not, you know, how-to guides to becoming a famous author or how to become, a, you know, a teacher or anything like that. These 
are very personal stories about definitions of ambition, how ambition plays out across a career, across the life, personal ambition versus professional ambition. It's a really great collection at a very important time for us to talk about female power and what ambition means to women uh, across the board, women and gender nonconforming people. So with me, I have some terrific people to my immediate left, my left, is Pam Houston, the author of five books of fiction and nonfiction, including, we all love it, Cowboys Are My Weakness, and Contents May Have Shifted. Um, Pam teaches in the creative writing programs at the Institute for American Indian Arts, which I was just talking with someone about, and at the University of California, Davis, and directs the literary nonprofit Writing by Writers. Next to Pam is Hawa Allen, who writes cultural criticism, fiction, and poetry. Her work has appeared in the Chicago Tribune, the Los Angeles Review of Books, and Transition, among other places. She is essays editor at The Offing, which is a very cool place if you don't know about it, and a graduate of Columbia Law School, where she was a fellow of the Center for the Study of Law and Culture. Over here, we have Erica Sanchez, and she's a poet, novelist, and essayist. Her poetry collection, Lessons on Expulsion, and her young adult novel, Brown Girl Problems, are forthcoming. She has received a Discovery Boston, sorry, Boston Review Poetry Prize and a Ruth Lilly Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Poetry Fellowship. That is a lot of names. <laughs> and finally, Claire V. Watkins, short person, but by no means tiny. She's the author of Gold Fame Citrus and Battleborn, winner of the Story Prize, the Dylan Thomas Prize, and the Young Lions Fiction Award, among others. A Guggenheim Fellow, she is an assistant professor in the Helen Zell Writers Program at the University of Michigan. And welcome. Thank you all so much for being here and joining us. Really appreciate it. So, um, as I said, I would like each of you to tell us a little bit about your piece in Double Bind. I asked the panelists, I said, you can talk about it, you can read a bit, or any combination thereof. So, that is totally up to them. And uh, I will go alphabetically, beginning with Hawa, um, if you will. Hello, can you hear me? Okay. Um, so, my essay... Uh, it's basically a, a recap of my, uh, re my former uh, incarnation as a corporate attorney at a big white shoe law firm. Um, it starts off with um, uh, my discussion of law school, etc., and it sort of meanders through discussions of Condoleezza Rice, Madonna, yoga, and uh, Eric from the Frankfurt School psychoanalyst. Um, so I don't have time to get into all of that, but I will read <laughs> to the beginning of the piece. I have been to a few Madonna concerts in my day, so I may or may not have been straining to get a view around the pillar planted in front of my discount seat when I beheld the superstar kick up into a forearm stand in the middle of the stage. For non-initiates, a forearm stand is a yoga pose wherein you, wherein you balance your entire body on your forearms, laying parallel to one another on the ground, and perpendicular to your upper arms, torso, and legs, all of which are inverted skyward. Imagine turning your entire body into an L, and then imagine Madonna doing the same, except spotlit before thousands of gaping fans in a large arena. I hadn't done any yoga at that point, so the irony of Madonna flaunting her ability in a discipline meant to induce inner awareness was totally lost on me. I just thought it was cool. Precisely, I interpreted Madonna's forearm stand as a demonstration of power, power that was quiet yet fierce. 
an expression of power that I immediately decided I wanted to embody. So not too long thereafter, I went ahead and enrolled in a series of free introductory lessons at yoga studios across Manhattan and Brooklyn. My modus operandi, take advantage of the introductory classes and skip to another studio once I no longer had a discounted pass. I was doing this, I told myself at the time, to test out different teachers, to find the right fit. In, in hindsight, I can see that it was just an excuse for being itinerant and cheap. In any case, I had a fair amount of time to shuttle between boroughs. My schedule was relatively flexible because I was in my second year of law school. Of course, with law school being law school, my schedule was not absolutely flexible, just relatively. Relative, that is, to the circulation-cutting constraints of my first year, which is both notoriously and actually all-consuming. I hadn't seen any of the films you're supposed to watch before your first day of law school, the ones in which some curmudgeon badgers you with cryptic questions and cleverly insults you as you strain to answer them amid the muffled chuckles of your peers. In my experience, all institutional education was rife with illeg illegitimate authority and bullying, so I didn't see why law school should be especially different. If anything, I was up for the challenge. I was quietly determined. My quiet determination, mind you, had very little to do with the subject at hand. Of course, I cared deeply about injustice, which, which unlike the lofty concept of justice, was down to earth and concrete, evident in the myriad of detrimental effects that structural inequality was having on actual human beings who lived in the real world. And moreover, I thought law school would provide me with the practical tools to upend injustice. However, as it turned out, I just didn't care very much about the law. A tort, as far as I'd ever known before that first year, referred to a kind of cake. And subjects like constitutional law, which were to me less esoteric and less esoteric and more pertinent to eradicating injustice, were systematically drained of all intrigue by the sheer volume of material we were expected to retain. My charge that first year was not to think and to critique, but to memorize and regurgitate. There was no time to consider what the law should or might be, only to apprehend what it was and then dutifully apply it to a hypothetical pa fact pattern while ignoring my moral compass. Throughout this experience, I fully grasped the meaning of that saying about the unpleasantness of sausage factories. Justice was no longer an abstract concept. Justice was sausage. Justice sausage, moreover, was often composed of the dismembered carcasses of injustice. But once we students arduously cranked it through this elaborate machine, we were too exhausted by the process to question the fairness of the outcome. Burning crosses, for example, was totally, con was totally constitutional, a protected form of free speech, as long as you burn them on your own lawn. And so for many, the legal process in and of itself came to justify the result, whatever it happened to be. I watched many a fellow law student transform from a sentient being into an android that spouted legal precedent on demand. My growing distaste for the law notwithstanding, I still wanted to do very well. So I suspended disbelief and went with the program. I tagged textbook pages with fine point pens. I dropped the holdings of cases into classroom mics. Like a dutiful uh, subject of colonial education, I imbibed and disgorged. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. More qu questions to come, but first, Pam. <clears throat> My essay. Um, my essay, hi, hi. Uh, my essay is, is called Ebenezer Laughs Back. It, it's a braided essay and it has a lot of different threads, but one thread is about my mother. Um, and I just pulled out little sections of that thread to read you. And it also, in this thread, I talk about the actual writing of the essay. So I thought I would read you this little thread. <clears throat> My beautiful mother ran away from Spiceland, Indiana at the end of the eighth grade. 
Her Aunt Ermie, who had raised her to that point, had bet my mother $50 that she could not get straight C's on her final report card. But she did get straight C's, took the cash, and got on a bus bound for Broadway. There she got plucked off the streets by two young actors who became, 30 years later, my Uncle Tommy and my Uncle Don. For the next several decades, she danced and sang and told jokes and did handsprings and cartwheels across stages in countless theaters, nightclubs, and cabarets in New York and elsewhere. During World War II, she went overseas with Bob Hope's USO touring show. After that, she became Frank Sinatra's opening act in Vegas, and after that, she returned to New York and acted in supporting roles both on and off-Broadway with some of the best of that time. Jackie Gleason, Walter Pidgeon, Nancy Walker. She never made it big, but she always had work, and she was proud of that. And though she never said it to me precisely this way, I believe she loved her life in those years with a ferocity approximating the love I have for my own life as a writer and traveler and teacher of writing. Then somewhere in the neighborhood of 42, she always lied about her age, and my father lied on her obituary, so now we will never know for sure. For reasons that are utterly inexplicable to me, she married my father and got pregnant. In that order, I have checked the dates a hundred times. He came backstage one night, so the story goes, after her performance at the Bucks County Playhouse in New Hope, New Jersey, with a dozen roses and an invitation for the pretty actress to take a spin in his cream-colored Buick convertible. She got so drunk on their first date, she threw up all over his milky leather seats, and he is said to have said, you better get your act together because we are going to get married. Six weeks later they were, and so began the miserable, conventional, ambitionless rest of her life. I gave up everything I loved for you, my mother would say to me almost daily, to get me to clean my room or part my hair or on the side or wear my retainer. And I would want only to find a way to give it all back, to restore her to her satisfying working life before being saddled with the burden of me. But why did you do that? I wish I had had the wherewithal to ask her. Alcohol, addiction notwithstanding, my mother had the strongest will of anyone I have ever known. She barely ate and she never perspired and she did not grow body hair. I am fairly certain if her biological clock had ticked one time, she could have willed it silent with her mind or smashed it with her, feet, with her fist. My father was charming, but she had had 42 years, plus or minus, to learn to see through his kind of charm. Had 30 years in the ups and downs of show business simply worn her out? Did she marry my father because she saw a future rushing toward her where the fact of her age would make it harder and harder to land roles? Or did some Indianan idea of conventionality sneak up out of the cornfield and grab her from behind? If it did, it lied to her about how it would feel once she got there. Her mother had died in childbirth with her, so it stands to reason that my birth would have killed her at least a little. She lived on until my 30th birthday, an honorable life that included fundraisers for the United Way, work with the developmentally disabled, devotion to the altar guild, good friends, and lots of tennis. But it seemed to be only a half-life, a shadow of the 30 years that had preceded it. And when a combination of vodka and Vioxx took her out at 70, give or take, I was alongside my sadness, glad she didn't have to witness herself losing any more than she already had. Uh, it is not precisely true to say that my mother stopped working after she married my father. For a while, she kept doing summer theater. When she gave that up, she landed roles in TV commercials and bit parts on soap operas. The long-lost cousin, the visiting aunt, 
Yet for every day she went off to New York for an audition or shoot and came home glowing and singing. There were ten other days when her task list read laundry, dinner, dry cleaning, Pam to dentist, cat to vet. And there is this. Even in the Betty's breakfast years when her residual checks added up to more than his income, my mother handed her checks directly over to my father. He gave my mother $200 household money every two weeks to buy groceries, clothes, and every single other thing the family needed from the time I was born till the time I left for college with no adjustment for inflation. My father carried more than $200 in his wallet at all times, bought used Cadillac convertibles and hand-tailored suits while my mother made our clothes on the sewing machine and scoured magazines to find interesting things to do with leftovers. The song that was on continuous repeat in my childhood kitchen was my mother reasoning or flirting or begging for an advance on next week's money and him shaming her, no matter what the circumstances, for spending it too fast. My mother did not appear in the first draft of this essay. In fact, this essay has been in so many drafts that it has taken me 20,000 wrong words to get to the 4,000 right ones. Because my mother mostly stayed at home and my father mostly went to work, I began writing with the hypothesis that I had gotten my ambition primarily from him. But then I realized my father's feelings about work were tepid, really, compared to the arias my mother sang daily to her bygone showbiz days. If your mother runs away from Spiceland, Indiana, to Broadway at 13, and if she spends the last 30 years of her life asking begging, really, for the money she earned back from her husband so that she can use it to pay for his freshly starched shirts, if the single most powerful and omnipresent emotion in your family's home is your mother's soul-shattering grief over the absence of meaningful work in her life, that is likely to inform your relationship with ambition. And if most of my striving has therefore been away and not toward, does that mean I am not, in essence, as different from the ambitionless woman as I thought I was? Does this mean that in some Condoleezza Rice-like way that I have drunk the Kool-Aid too? Did my mother drink the Kool-Aid? Who made the Kool-Aid? Who sold it to my mother for five cents a glass? My essay is about a job when I turned 30 that shattered me, and it brought up a whole host of childhood issues that I had been repressing for many years. And so here it goes. It's called Crying in the Bathroom, which I did a lot at that time. None of us can relate to it. <laughs> Everyone in my family was incredibly hardworking, and I admire them for their resilience and generosity, but nobody... Nobody had the kind of life I wanted, particularly the women. My aunt who worked at a candy factory looked at my hands when I was a kid and told me I had manos de rica. It was true. They were smooth and soft, rich lady hands. My mom, most of my aunts, and many of my cousins married young and had children soon after. In addition to all the cooking and cleaning, their jobs involved intense physical labor. Every day, my mother came home to never-ending cooking and chores. Who could blame her for being perpetually tired and cranky? Her life seemed like a crushing burden. Her world revolved around us and the factory, and there was little room for anything else. 
She never did anything for herself, never had the luxury of time or money, didn't even have hobbies or good friends to unwind with after work. When I was eight or so, I used her face cream thinking it was body lotion, and she was so angry and disappointed. Why, she wanted to know. Why would you do such a thing? At that time, I had no idea why she was yelling at me over moisturizer. But now I understand that it was probably one of the few things she ever indulged in, and I had taken it away from her. What did I want out of my life? I sure as hell didn't want to work in a factory. That was my parents' worst nightmare. They didn't cross the deadly Tijuana border for their kids to work like donkeys in this country. I know they would have been happy if we simply had white-collar jobs. It didn't even matter what kind. But I always knew that I wanted so much more than that. Ridiculous, impossible things. I certainly didn't want to get married or have kids. Judging from what I saw in my family, children sucked all the fun out of everything. <laughs> Most of the women I knew seemed unhappy, so I fashioned together my dream life from various books and movies. If other women were financially independent, traveled alone, and went to college, why couldn't I? I got myself through college and graduate school on my own. One fall, I couldn't even afford to buy myself a coat. It was a shameful existence at times, but I had pulled through alone, and I was proud of that. After I received my master's degree, I was stuck in corporate America for two grueling years until I was able to cobble together a living by tutoring at a local university and freelance writing for major publications like Cosmopolitan for Latinas, NBC Latino, Al Jazeera, and The Guardian. I was hustling and barely surviving. My income was downright embarrassing for an adult. Though I was successful in many ways, I was financially disempowered. I was too old to be struggling like a college student. I'd been poor for most of my life and I was tired. Accolades were nice, but I wanted my success to translate into cold, hard cash in my little brown hands. I wanted the luxury of buying a pair of shoes without falling into a spiral of worry and guilt. I got married the summer I turned 30. During that time, my writing garnered the attention of a public relations firm, and they offered me a full-time salaried position as senior strategist. Most of my writing was focused on reproductive rights, which I had been passionate about for many years, and it was more money than I had ever seen in my life. It was not my dream job by any means. I imagined I'd be a professor or famous writer at this age. Ha! But I was excited to write about issues I cared about, and I was eager to be compensated for my knowledge and talent. Though I could still live in Chicago, the job would require me to travel to New York frequently. I had always been scrappy, however, and had traveled to many places on my own. I felt like I could do anything. Nothing could have prepared me for my monumental unraveling. No, it's difficult to follow that stuff. Thanks, everyone. And thanks, Bethan, for moderating. Thank you all for being here. Uh, the essay that I have in this anthology, which is really, really great, I hope you'll be able to read it in some way, shape, or form. Um, it's about leaving my hometown. And um, it was originally, I wrote it, uh, This American Life, the podcast, asked me to, if I would um, pitch them a story for a show that was themed... Um, how I got to college. And I think they asked me that because I'd written an essay for the New York Times about 
how I got to college. So I pitched them this, and it eventually it got rejected, but that's okay, because I, I liked it, what I wrote anyway, so I published it in this anthology. Anyway, it's, um, I'll just read you this excerpt. It's a little bit about the town where I grew up. Um, it's called Perump, the name of the town, not the essay. I would never call an essay that. <laughs> anyway, the town of Perump is about 35,000 people sprayed along sprayed along, sprayed across a long, hot valley with purple-black mountains all around it. The bottommost point of the valley is a crusty, white, dry lake bed, the scene of many car commercials and music videos wishing to convey freedom and or desolation. Over the mountains to the east is Las Vegas, 60 miles away. On a clear night, you can see the city lights over the range, our neon aurora borealis. To the west, over another mountain range, is Death Valley. I'm not kidding. Death Valley. Perump is hot and dry as hell. Over 100 degrees the whole week we're here for the Mojave School. At one point, a guy at the laundromat says, I like this place. It reminds me of the Persian Gulf. It's a place where the boys become construction workers and the girls become cocktail waitresses. The sunsets are sublime. A population of 35,000 sounds like a lot, but those 35,000 people are scattered over more than 350 square miles, so Perump still feels pretty small. Plenty of residents would disagree with that, remembering 1980 when only 2,000 people lived here. Now there are two stoplights, one public high school, and a lot of the roads are still dirt or gravel. Most of the houses are prefab mobile homes or straight-up trailers. In this town, there is a difference. If you're interested, the distinction between a mobile home and a trailer has to do with whether the home is on wheels and an apron of cinder blocks or just wheels. It's a subtle distinction, but an important one when you grow up here, like the difference between free and reduced lunch. Free lunch means you're a scrounge, and reduced lunch means you're regular. No one here says poor, and they certainly do not say working class, underserved, economic inequality, or any of the other names for this place I learned in college. There's a third type of house here, too, which we call stick-built, even though they're mostly stucco. Most homes are set on big, unlandscaped patches of desert. The house I grew up in, 1600 Lola Lane, was a mobile home on three and a half acres, shaped actually like the state of Nevada. I'm not being heavy-handed here. It really was, with a big, beautiful cotton, cottonwood tree shuddering at its tip. I was on reduced lunch. The lots, the lots seem empty, but they rarely are. Most yards are clustered with cars, both running and not, or horse corrals, or a cache of building materials, or mounds of unspread gravel, or other trailers, or a pen of peacocks, or ostriches, or wolf dogs. Pahrump has no mayor, no sewer system, no alleys, hardly any sidewalks. Until the 60s, there were no telephones. The main drag is strewn with billboards featuring blondes beckoning men to strip clubs and brothels. After we moved from Lola Lane, my family lived in a stick-built house on the south side near the town's two brothels, the Chicken Ranch and Sherry's Ranch. I learned to parallel park at Sherry's. But before I could drive, my school bus passed the brothels every morning. It was a moment I waited for, a moment I loved, because of the Chicken Ranch. The Chicken Ranch is stick-built, 
and painted pink and baby blue with dormer windows and a white picket fence. As a girl, I'd never seen a house so beautiful, and I just wanted to live there. Very close. Thank you, Hawa. Um, there, there are so many ways to start, but one thing I want to say about the, e thank you, the, the things that each panelist has just read is it shows ambition and thoughts about ambition and notions about ambition start very early. And they start with our places of origin and our families of origin and in our need to get away from places and families. <laughs> yeah, oh boy, <laughs> can I talk about that? We all could. But um, when I was thinking about that, I realized, I, I said to a colleague, oh, well, I wonder, you know, what do men learn about ambition? And we both looked at each other and we thought, men are born with that being something that they're supposed to do. There's no, um, there aren't books called Men on Ambition, are there? You know, no one's writing these essays. So let me first ask each of you, and, and feel free to discuss and, you know, talk over me and, and whatever. How do we, how do we define ambition? What is ambition? That was something Robin and I spoke about for a long time. It's not simply an exercise plan. It's not simply wanting um, to get a good job. There's a lot more to it than that. Anyone? Um, for me, ambition, um, I didn't think of it as ambition. Um, I was a little girl, and I just wanted to see the world, and I wanted to write, and that's all I ever wanted, and that's how I lived my life, with that goal in mind. Um, and so, like I said in the essay, for my parents, it would have been great if I just worked in an office, because they worked in factories, and um, that, for them, was a sign of success, uh, just to have air conditioning, just to be able to sit down. Um, during work. Um, my mother worked at a, the, a paper factory and it was grueling, grueling work. Um, and so for me, I wanted more than what they expected. Um, and some of those things seemed really impossible. I came from a, a working class family and I remember once I, I told my brother, I'm like, I want to see the whole world. I just want to travel. I think I was maybe 12 or 13 at the time. And he's like, well, where are you going to get the money for that? And so I felt really crushed by that because it was that was my dream. Um, that's what I wanted to do in my life. And, and to come from a family in which you don't receive any financial help, that is a real struggle. Uh, for me, I think um, ambition and success means um, being free and you know living the life that you want. Um, and, and that's why that job was so terrible for me because it was, I was a, in a very controlled environment and that's not how I ever imagined my life. Um, I wanted to write and I wanted to move around in the world and, and make a difference. <laughs> I'd like to add that, 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 that I, thanks for that because it really resonated with me. I mean, it's got to, the idea of, got, of mission, ambition has got to be more than just like cashing checks. Like it's to me... I don't know. I'm not really interested in that. It's just, yeah, a version of freedom. Like, to be able to move where and through the world the way I want to move through it, to be able to say what happens to my body when it happens, 
to be able to um, be heard. Yeah, I was just going to say, for me, and this is also in a different part of the essay, but um, but my father said to me, uh, Pam, one of these days you're going to wake up and realize that you spend your whole life lying in the gutter with somebody else's foot on your neck. That's that was that's true. That was <laughs> that that was his worldview, and he said it repeatedly, and he believed it, even though you know by any objective standard he had a you know a, a reasonable life and made a reasonable amount of you know made an, you know we weren't we weren't rich we weren't poor but you know he he came out of nothing and he made a life for himself but but he really believed that that was his worldview and he said it repeatedly and so my ambition at, at you know was simply to make that not true like so much of the driving force of my life was to make that not true. And that involved a lot of things. That involved travel, and it involved doing what I love for a living, and it, it, it became a lot of things. But even to this day, like, I'm trying to prove, even under the Trump administration, I'm trying to prove that that's not true, you know. And uh, You weren't supposed to say that five-letter word. I'm sorry. <laughs> 45, I guess, is what we're calling it now. Um, but uh, just try to prove that that, he, that it, it, it's not true. And then, and then you know, I think... Just, I just, this might lead us somewhere else, but I just want to say, like, I think the word ambition gets complicated at a certain point because um, ambition, too much ambition, can be unattractive on it on anyone, you know, male or female. But that, that may be not where we're going right now. And I don't want to uh, how because I definitely wanted to ask you also in terms of oh, and also Erica, you touched on this, but how how ambition is filtered through a family who has immigrated? Um, well, I mean, there's always that issue of having immigrant parents um, who themselves have basically crossed into another completely other world. They, they're, you know, any immigrant, I think, is ambitious because to reimagine your life in a completely different context where you don't have any family, you don't have any roots, you don't have any support, and to believe that you can do it is an ambitious thing in and of itself. And I think they, you know, in my case, certainly my parents expected me to be very achievement-oriented. So I sort of, you know, I absorbed that through osmosis. My, my issue came when I, I, I was sort of trying to achieve in, you know, these contexts that I realized I didn't, you know, determine for myself. I was just sort of you know, uh, moving about to place to place, achieving and trying to prove myself. And then I realized that I was miserable and I didn't know what I, why I was doing these things. Um, but, you know, ultimately in my essay, I, I end up thinking about ambition as something that is not, but, well, I was thinking about it in two ways. One, in a way in which, you know, you look at achievement, which is really, you know, a pro it's supposed to be a process, like it's, you know, to achieve, right? It's, it's sort of a verb, right? But we think about it, we tend to think about it in terms of a gold star, like something that uh, you, you, you sort of get something out of, something that's sort of acquisitive, when it's really more of a process, um, and it's supposed to be more self-reflective, and it's, and it's ongoing. And I know we quote, sort of know that in quotes, but it's different when you sort of experience that in your day-to-day -day life, and you, you know, especially when there's a mismatch between what you're supposed to be trying to achieve and and how that's actually making you feel on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, uh, each of you, uh, are you now, at this point, 
comfortable saying, I'm ambitious. I'm an ambitious person. I'm an ambitious woman. I'm an ambitious writer. Is that something you even think? Yeah, I am. Yay! I'm a workaholic freak, you know, which, which is what I mean. Like, too much ambition crosses over. Like, where does ambition end and workaholism begin? But, well, but play, I am certainly comfortable too, saying I'm ambitious. You, I'm you play hard, too. Pam. I play hard, too. Work hard, play hard. But you yeah. said, I do know enough to ask where ambition yeah. ends and workaholism mm. begins. And, and that, I think, is a crucial, you know, a, a crucial point. And as you were saying, Erica, it's very hard to get there. Erica talks about being in this job that she thought would be very good. It had, you know, good benefits, good salary. But they use this awful thing called time task. Other people, I'm sure other companies have a similar thing where you have to account for every minute of your day. And when you get to that point, it feels like, oh, let me see if I can find the um, the correct sticky note for this, because it really, I, I loved what you said about this, Erica. Um, it was like a sweatshop of the mind. Mm. And so we do need to know, as writers, clearly, when we're just spinning our wheels and when we're being a workaholic. And it's okay to be a workaholic, but is that something that feeds your real work? You know, so that's something I think we all, we all grapple with as well. So, when you get comfortable with being someone who's ambitious, is it fraught? I mean, I think we touched on this, but let's talk a little bit more about how it's fraught for us because of gender. Please. Um, like you mentioned, for men, it's not even a question. Right. Like, we don't talk about ambitious men. Um, and I think for women, we um, the way we're often portrayed is that... If we're ambitious, we're cutthroat and we're immoral and we'll stab other women in the back. Um, and that is not true at all in my experience. Um, I think it's easy to succeed without you know, hurting other people. Um, that's how I live my life. I, I don't believe in competing with other women personally. I, I, I feel like we're all in this together and I feel that we need to lift each other up because who else is gonna do it? And so, um, yeah, that, I, that idea of ambition as being unattractive, I think we need to flip the script and, and make it so, you know, I mean, it's already not true, but I think we need to just keep challenging that, that notion because it's, it's false. Uh, is it, are there times when um, being a woman is an asset in terms of ambition? The room goes silent. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I but I really like what you just said about, um, that was one of my questions for you all. Um, Elisa Albert has a, an essay in here, and I, you know, don't expect anyone to have read it, but it's it's a very long piece, and she tells the um, story of after, I believe after Afterbirth came out, which was her third novel, um, going to a party at something like AWP, and having a friend with her, and the friend said to this other writer who had just gotten some great, fantastic deal, look, you know, this is my friend Elisa, and, you know, she, blah, 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 is a writer. And I was like, yes, well, I don't have much time to read contemporary things right now. I'm working on my own stuff. And then Elisa said, oh, well, I just wrote and published Afterbirth. Oh, my God, I love that book. And I think that's part of the competition we face as women sometimes. And it's not, sometimes, it, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's cloaked. It's cloaked um, behind, um, I am a more important writer than you are. I'm 
more beautiful than you are. I'm more this. I have better life balance. I know how to get my, you know, children together, all of that kind of thing. So talk to me about that, if you will. You're nodding, Claire. I am nodding because on the one hand, I uh, like ambition and between women and the way women are encouraged to be pitted against each other is something I struggle with. And I um, have been guilty of it myself, too, <laughs> of comparing or competing with other women. And uh, it's just it's <laughs> frustrating. Um, that's all. I guess I just wanted, like, a Bob Eric yop. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I, it's, it's really hard. It really, it really is very hard. And there are a couple of essays in here um, that are about um, Robin's essay about deciding after a really terrific career that, you know, she really did want a baby. And it was going to take a lot of time and effort and money and take something away from her professional ambition. There's also a piece about a woman who's just had a child and trying to balance all of that sort of thing. So uh, who talked about Lisa Simpson? Was that you? Uh, I love Erica said that Lisa Simpson was a role model for her in this world in which, you know, women were working really hard at paper factories, then coming home, cooking the meals, taking care of the kids. And I liked that because Lisa, I think, is such an interesting role model for all of us. She's so very Lisa. So let's talk about role models and some of the ones you found for yourselves. And Pam, I'd love to hear about this from you as well. Role models? Role models. Um, I'm going to embarrass myself hugely and say I don't know who Lisa Simpson is. Is she, is, is she like Homer's wife? Uh, no, she's the daughter and she's oh. the saxophone playing book reading daughter. I am so sorry. That's okay. No, it, it would only be me. It would only be me. I, I, um, role models. That's interesting. Um, I, gosh, I mean, as I, as you saw from what I read, I mean, you know, in a weird backwards way, my mother was a role model because she did, mm -hmm. she did get the hell out of Spiceland, Indiana, mm -hmm. and ran away to New York. You know, mm -hmm. she was kind of a wild child. It turns out. Um, but I, role models. I guess. I mean, what if I said like Lucille Ball and Willa Cather? Um, just to throw Sounds two, to me. just to throw two out there. Um, <laughs> I watched every single episode of any sort of Lucy show, and if you're around my age, you know there were about 13 different versions. There was I Love Lucy, and then all the ones that followed. Oh God, yes. And, um, and then, and then I think I think Willa Cather. Once I started reading her, which I did quite young, like just the idea of Westward Ho and Pioneer Woman and all of that. Um, so. Uh, no, that's, uh, that's excellent. I think those are terrific role models to have. And role <laughs> models, you know, I, um, I do so many author interviews, and I'm always asking people, you know, who's your greatest influence, and, I, you know, things like that. But I love it when people say, here's someone completely out of the creative realm. who, it, Or they are, like Lucy, in uh, the creative realm, and it's a completely different sort of thing. That's why I think Lisa Simpson is so powerful. Um, you know, people in that generation, like you said, got a lot of... Of, of TV heroes. How, right. how about you? Well, I, I guess in my essay, uh, I do talk about Madonna, but not necessarily because. <laughs> I mean, I love, I happen to love Madonna, full disclosure, but she's not my role model, so to speak. I'm, I don't look at her and want to be like Madonna. But that said, I also talk about Condoleezza Rice, and I thought that they embodied a certain kind of uh, ambition in female form that at least we're used to 
which is sort of competitive, acquisitive, it's, you know, persistent, steadfast, it's unapologetic. And that's very interesting to me because, you know, I think that's how we think of, that's one model of ambition, and, um, but, you know, it can be misguided if it's misplaced. You know, one of my, you know, favorite Toni Morrison moments is when um, she was on a panel with Cornel West, and someone asked, you know, what do you think about Condoleezza Rice? This was during the Bush administration, Bush two, And then she paused, and then she said, I think she needs another job. <laughs> yeah, so. Did you also mention Condoleezza? I do. I was going to say, this is very intriguing to it me. Is. Two essays, um, two writers, very different, and writing about very different topics, both mention Condoleezza Rice. And she is... A difficult role model, and I know one of the things that we want to talk about here is women in politics and ambition. Um, we, first, we have Hillary. We have Hillary on one side. I'm not making this side the Kellyanne Conway side. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> that's not what I meant to do. But um, Condoleezza is an intriguing character. The reason I think both of you talked about her is no matter how many mistakes she made and how many new jobs she needed, she was someone who embodied a new kind of female, um, I don't know, she was, she was a pianist, she was an ice skater, she was a razor, had a razor-sharp mind. What do you think? What else? Tell me about that and what that means to women politics in politics today. Well, you know, for me, I can just say for me personally, watching Condoleezza Rice, I didn't necessarily feel some kind of vicarious pride because I, I, I thought, again, her ambition was sort of misplaced, but it was just a fascinating spectacle to see, to see her, um, you know, rise to Secretary of State, always be composed. Her hair was perfectly flipped. She had that, you know, pink or pastel suit, whatever it was. Like, she was just always, you know, she had the right answer for, for everything. She knew everything. She was completely rehearsed and just unflappable. And, you know, especially not only as a woman, but as a black woman, it's just very interesting to see that. Um, and um, yeah, obviously it was problematic, but it, it, it was it was sort of, I guess it would, for me, I'm just going to say it, it was fascinating. Really, really um, interesting. Pam, anything, Akani? Not, not really. I mean, really, <laughs> my sentence there isn't, I mean, I don't, I don't know enough. I mean, I watched her as you watched her, as we all watched her, but I don't know enough about her to say, but... But just to throw one more thing into this mix of what you're asking, I am constantly aware of my own reactions to Kellyanne Conway. And Dude, Kellyanne Conway is in the sisterhood too, right? right? Exactly. It's so fucking. I am. I am. I am complicated, you know. <laughs> yeah. See, the Conway well, is in the sisterhood. I, is she? Has she absented herself from the sisterhood? I don't know. This is all I'm saying. I'm we might need to take a vote. I knew Claire would jump on this. I. I, I mean. To, 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 to me, that's all I'm saying. I am watching my own reaction because yeah. I feel, do I feel more violently toward her than I do to some of the, to, to Mitch McConnell? No. But to some of them, I, I, my violent feelings toward her have my attention. Mm -hmm. So that's a really interesting thing. I would say. Right, like, you know, Kellyanne is in the sisterhood. 
in a way, and I mean that broadly, not just in like the cis, cis CIS sisterhood, but um, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> like, I just mean like, if does radical compassion or radical love look like right now? To me, it looks like being like Kellyanne Conway is my sister, also, you know, or like taking a good look at white feminism, which I didn't even know about before I accidentally wrote an essay and kind of accidentally displayed it. I didn't. I was completely educated by women of color and queer women. And we too often don't acknowledge those contributions. We, well, we definitely don't often enough acknowledge those contributions. And I think that is um, actually part and parcel of this double bind, which is that mm -hmm. the way women are educated who we're educated by, who we're brought up by. Um, Lucille Ball can teach you more about freedom than some of these rigid elementary school teachers that we have who are, you know, are, my husband's family is from Indiana, so I feel like we rank on um, <laughs> Iceland, you know, who are back in Indiana and don't want to open their minds to anything. And here's another question for all four of you about ambition. You, you know, there's so much self-education in each of your essays. You know, there's, uh, these are not essays about, well, I was born with ambition, I was born with privilege, and I, you know, it's always been like that for me. There's a lot of coming to terms with things and a lot of, you know, sort of self, um, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, if you will. So anyone want to talk about self-reliance in terms of ambition? Am I asking the wrong questions? No, I'm <laughs> asking um, Like growing up in the West and then going on and writing about the West, self, the self-reliance deal was big to me growing up. And some people have suggested to me, well, maybe you, you grew up to be kind of ambitious because you grew up in the West and there's this like prairie ethos or whatever. But um, that's also kind of bullshit because like I, my family, I mean, the, you know, my family receives so much assistance. So I often get called like the you know, the exception, like, oh, kids from these towns, they don't succeed, but you did, so you're proof that it can happen, but it's like, no, I'm proof that it doesn't really work, because I got so much more assistance than anyone else that I grew up with, like, I got public assistance, right, like, I lived literally on public lands, um, the government brought us water, right, like, and I got fluoride in our water because of the government, because of the federal government, and I went on to be able to get advanced degrees and chew apples, you know, because of the federal government. So it's, of course, such such BS, but it was very much there on the surface level, this pull, your, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, girl, kind of thing. One time my mom said, or my sister, channeling my mom, came to visit me in my new house, and she said, I said, oh, you know, you like the living room? It's like a big house. And she said, well, yeah, like, did you paint it yourself? I said, uh... Yeah, we painted it. And my husband said, we paid people to paint it. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. We paid people to paint it. And she goes, huh. And I was like, what? And, and she goes, we're not paid people, people. Oh, it, you know? it rankles my mother when we <laughs> talk about having the lawn, the paid, you know, landscaping. Ooh, that's a, that, is, that is a fraught thing. But it's interesting. One of the other things um, Erica had in her essay, but I noticed, and I don't know if it was in all of yours or in other ones that I read in the book, about becoming a nuisance when you hit puberty. And so, you know, um, sex below the belt, gender above the belt. Um, 
but there's this theme throughout Double Bind of women realizing about themselves when they reach puberty, whether it's 12 or 16, that suddenly, you know, everyone finds them smart-assed. Everyone is uncomfortable with their physical selves, your, your shaven legs and your mother being, you know, upset about that. Um, there's a real problem. That's where we hit this problem with ambition. I know so many girls, there are all kinds of statistics about girls, you know, suddenly their grades dropping, leaving math and science classes when they hit puberty. So let's talk about that biological component. I just remember hitting uh, 12, 13, whatever it was when I went to junior high officially and deciding to become a tomboy. Well, I don't know if it was a conscious decision, but essentially that I was just wearing baggy clothes and hoodies because I just didn't want to deal with what seemed to be going on, which seemed to be this sort of weird performance of gender. I didn't have the terminology for it yet, but I was just, I just didn't want to be involved. Um, you know, I, I felt like I was being pulled into this sort of uh, world where I would have to act a certain way and not do certain things and I couldn't walk certain places by myself and suddenly there were all these pressures on me at home about how I was conducting myself and I, you know, that I hadn't felt before. So that, I mean, that, it didn't necessarily have to do with ambition, but more so just about how I, my body was placed in the world and that was my small rebellion, I guess, to sort of reclaim a sense of power by just dressing like a boy and being done with it. Interesting. Yeah, I I was it wasn't quite puberty, it was a little later. But I wanted only to be able to do what the boys could do. And that led me to be not not the first by any means, but one of the first um female whitewater river guides in southern Utah and the first licensed <laughs> Do I say this aloud at AWP? Yes. Um, one of the first licensed doll sheep hunting guides, the, the first female doll sheep hunting guide in um, one particular district in the Alaska range. I know. Thank you. Thank you, Claire, for shaming me. Um, I did not shoot any sheep myself. Not that, not that, yes, silence is violence. That's right. She would. And so it's, that's right. Yeah, don't I fucking get to be in this sisterhood? Um, but, um, but, but I, so, so I led mostly Texan men to the sheep. Um, so it's worse. It's worse than if I had shot the sheep myself. That's really bad. It's really bad. Um, Ten, ten day hunts, me and the guy, me and the Texan, or sometimes Louisiana. No offense to Texans, I know there are good people in Texas. We're, we're reading about them all the time. Um, but these guys, not so much. And, um, and I, ten, ten days, and, you know, as you might guess, when they saw me, they couldn't believe their eyes. Like, they had hired for a lot of money, $15,000, something like that, which I got paid $100 a day. To be with this guy 24-7, carry his gun, carry his warmies, um, carry his lunch, and take him to, to, to kill a sheep 
Only if we got to the sheep. And and honestly, I mean, honestly, this is true. It doesn't leave this room. I threw a few hunts. Like, if the guy was just so offensive, it's not hard at all to make the sheep move. You'll never tell Donald and Eric So only the decent ones actually went home with the sheep. But but anyway, I, I did that for four years. So so for me, it was... Um, it, 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 it was, at first I thought it was just about like making them not notice that I was female, mm-hmm. you know, like that I could, that I could be mistaken for one of them. And often I still am, like I'll go into a bar and, and talk sports and I can, and I can tell the moment where they forget that I'm female because I know so much about sports, which is another embarrassment here at AWP, but I do. Um, and, and so so for me, that's how it was. It was just wanting to get to do everything they did by being invisible to them as female. That was my strategy. And I carried that strategy into my 30s, I would say. Well, and I think that I'm sure both of you have things to say, but that is um, be, trying to become invisible is one of the problems with female ambition. You know, and that's where those bad suits and, and the, the blouses with the bows at the neck <laughs> came from in the 70s and 80s. You know, let's be just like the men and anonymous instead of being, you know, our bumptious selves. So, still in the sisterhood? <laughs> <laughs> I just like to share a quick story. When I was two, um, I tried peeing standing up because I saw a boy do it. <laughs> if, if a boy can do it, so can I. And so that's like this joke in the family that has never died. Um, also, when I was 16 or so, I shaved my head. And that was, again, trying to be invisible in a way or trying to be like a boy so I w- wasn't noticed. But in fact, it made me even more noticeable. So that was a really interesting experience. But I think a lot of girls do that. They try to um, hide their bodies and, and hide who they are um, because we're perceived as such a burden. Um, I, I know my mom was terrified that I'd get pregnant. Terrified. And, and I understand that terror because a lot of girls did. And so, uh, but it made me feel really ashamed and, and it confused. Excellent. Um, excellent. Oh, go ahead, please. Well, yeah, so Pam's point about, like, doing the things that the guys are doing, I, I sort of had a similar strategy, but it was just basically, like, be, try to be, be in places where I'm the only woman in the room. So I spent a lot of time, like, at band practices or in the weight at the gym, like I like to go in the weight room or I like to use the men's bathroom, or I just kind of I want to like infiltrate that world and be like, what are you doing in there? Like, what are you doing in those rooms that none of the women are in? You know, like what's the locker room talk? Like, I want to hear the locker room talk. I always eavesdrop on men when I leave a room or if I'm at a bar or something I think I can't hear because it's a I guess it's a writer thing I just like language I like to hear the language shift I like to hear them use words they wouldn't use if they if they thought a woman was around um but it's usually been a strategy that manifests itself with just being you know promiscuous and um giving out a kind of commodity having something to offer via sex in the body or um writing like being, you know, on all the, the panels where you're the only person, only woman, or you're the in the in the West, you know, the writing, the American West panels are usually kind of sausage fests. So I think that's it's a similar kind of impulse, you know, just wanting to like, I don't know, uh, infiltrate, <laughs> infiltrate. I like that. Um, that I like that word. And um, I 
by no means finished. There's so many other things to ask, but it is 5.30. I want to leave time for your questions. So um, I will just uh, right here, right in front. Well, you know, women are the toughest motherfuckers that I know. I mean, when you talk, I, there was, you know, some study, someone's like, oh, you know, they found out there's this trait and it's all super successful people have it or whatever and it's not your pedigree and it's not your intelligence, it's grit. Grit, you know? <laughs> like, it's like, yeah, I'm like, no shit. Like, it's difficult to do difficult things. Um, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, you know, this is going hard. It's hard to write my book. It's hard to have a... You know, it's like, yeah, because that's a hard thing to do. Like, big deal. You know, like most things worth doing are hard. And I got that kind of attitude from my mom and my grandma and all the women around me um, watching other women writers or artists move in spaces. I feel really genuinely so grateful to be at Born when I was because I'm just kind of walking along whistling, whereas women who came before me would were not even allowed in the rooms, or, you know, couldn't walk in the spaces, and I, I don't mean it, I mean, I don't know, I just feel, I just feel super grateful, and so great, and gra gratitude, that's what ambition means to me. a good one, gratitude. Yeah. Um, I, too, um, learned how to be resilient from my mother. Um, my mother had a sixth grade education and um, even now she feels very self-conscious about that um, she doesn't uh, think she's smart and that's so untrue and um, she's like well, how did how did you kids come out so smart and I always have to remind her that it was her um, and that makes me sad so I, I also am very grateful to the women that came before me the kind of life that I live is so unfathomable I think to women before um, I get to do whatever the fuck I want and that to me is like incredible and that to me is freedom uh, and, and that's what ambition means to me um, and so to think of all the sacrifices that my mom had to make for us to even have a chance at a different kind of life um, I, I'm also very grateful for that um, and learning how she her own ambition, the way she, she was the one who wanted to cross the border. My dad didn't, and, and she was like, no, I want a different life. I, I want to go to the United States. And so I always remember that when I think about my mother and, and I, I think about how I learned to be tough. Um, well, I think I agree. Ambition to me also means freedom um, now. <laughs> I, it took me a while to get there, but like it doesn't have to. It means like sort of internal sense of freedom, um, and I think you know, you know, having started through with yoga, you can't really continue to go along that path without looking at things in a more metaphysical type of way. So I'm, I'm more I'm interested in sort of internal freedom, internal joy, um, and uh, and an ambition to sort of continually sort of realize that, you know. Um, and notice when I'm not feeling that way. Um, in terms of the characteristic that I think, I think it's just determination. You know, I'm just a very determined person, period. <laughs> so I think that has taken me a long way. Um, and hopefully now I'm in the right direction, not in the wrong one, but that continues to be, that continues to unfold. 
I sort of talked about already what what ambition is to me, um, and I would, I mean, to me, it, it definitely has to do with freedom, um, but I, I guess I, I would say tenacity. I mean, it's the same. It, it's the same answer. Um, but I had another thought. Let me see if I can get back to it. Um, no, can't get back to it. Sorry, <laughs> it's gone. No problem. We have plenty of other questions right over here. <laughs> We didn't even get to imposter syndrome, am I? <laughs> That's another panel. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll, I can speak first. I, um, I, if you're in the business of writing, you know, if you if you if you stay in this business long enough, you will have to fight for something really hard. Um, it happened to me in my second book, and it's about to happen again. <laughs> um, and there's been lots of little battles between just the I, I wrote a book and it wasn't the book that that the publisher wanted and so I had to fight for it. I had to fight for its life basically. Um, which will happen to every writer. <laughs> like I don't I don't know any writers who are anything close to my age that that hasn't happened to. Um, because it's a business and we're artists and there's an inherent clash there. Um, it, and I guess for me, I mean, I think I think the definition of being a writer is something like you and fight you fight imposter syndrome every single minute, right? You know, who cares? Why should anyone care? I suck. I, you know, I mean, I think that's just the price of admission. That's that's how we are every day. That's how we sit every day at our computers. It's how I sit every day at my computer. But when it came to finishing a book and having a book, and then having to fight for it in the world, you know, it turned out I was you know, a mother bear. You know, it turned out I just fought and fought and fought and fought until I won. Um, so for me, it's two different things. Like, like maybe it's like yoga. <laughs> like, like when I'm there at my computer, I'm fighting imposter syndrome constantly, constantly, every minute, every, every, everything in my head is telling me you're not good enough and you don't deserve to be telling the story. And even if you do, you won't tell it well. And that's my, that's my, that's my dance over here. But then, when I sort of enter the workplace with my book, the metaphorical workplace, um, I'm I'm a cheetah. <laughs> yeah. Anything else either one of you to say to that, or <laughs> right here? While the panelists are, are thinking, I'll just tell you an anecdote that happened to me recently. Um, my younger daughter graduated from high school, and we were having a celebration lunch with my mother. And um, while we were sitting in this very nice restaurant, she misused a word, and I corrected her. It's the English teacher in me, and it's not an attractive trait. And she wrote me an email and was, you know, corrected, you know, was, was rightly, you know, pissed off at me for saying that. But her reaction was really curious. Not all of us have had the advantage of the education you have had. The education, of course, that my parents scrimped and saved to give me. And that load, so I think that load, we all have it to some extent. Yeah, I, I don't ever experience that with my own mother. Um, I think because 
in many ways, like, she and my dad came here so we could have a better life. And to see that come to fruition for her is very satisfying. And we have, like, a very beautiful relationship. And to uh, recently she said to me, you're my role model. And I was like, oh, my God, that's so beautiful. Thank you. Um, and I think that kind of uh, relationship happens a lot with immigrant parents. Um, I, I know that's not always the case, but... Uh, for me, my mom just wants to see me succeed and um, is really just proud of me. And, and I think that's really um, important and valuable to me. My parents are dead, so I don't know. <laughs> no hang-ups at all. Yeah, my, my, my mom actually had the big life, the big life, right. and she gave it away to have me and then was really, really sorry <laughs> if that didn't come through. <laughs> I think we probably have like time for two more questions. So um, you and then right here, yes, in the way in the back. Yeah. Uh, um, I, uh, just off the top of my, like, I don't think about it that way anymore. You know, I'm 55. I, you know, I like I, now. I want. I just don't think about it that way. I, I think probably when I was 28. You know, maybe a little more. I'm not sure it's competition because I honestly will say for me, like I was always at odds with myself. You know, I was always at odds more with my own self-defeating voices than I ever felt literally in competition with my peers or my cohort in grad school or other writers that were being published. I, I don't really have that gene so much, but I especially don't know. You know, I, I, I don't, um, you know, I, I just, it's, it's tiring and, and it's not, Productive. Right. I mean, so, ge gener generosity is the only thing that makes me feel good now. I guess I would say. Thank you. Oh, the bossy woman, the shrill woman. <laughs> say one thing really quickly. I, um, I mean, that's sort of what my essay takes up. Like, my essay takes up, okay, so I understand that the purpose of this anthology is to be like, you know, men make us feel bad when we're ambitious. <laughs> like, like, I get that. I get that's the motivating force of the essay, but I really wanted to look at myself, my own my own bad tendencies, you know, and my own my own workaholism, but also like like who who's off the hook? Like like I didn't want to let myself off the hook in the ambition department, one way or the other. Like whether I I I like you know we we all left that question. You, you saw how none of us touched that question. You know, do you, is a, being a woman ever an advantage? Well, I think all of us know it is, but we didn't really exactly want to talk about that because we couldn't figure out how to make it work in our heads really fast. But you know, so so. I, I do, I mean, I think what you're saying is great because I think probably they were wrong to criticize you and probably there's an aspect of it that's true. And I think, you know, just being a person of any 
any ilk, any gender, any, you know, I think we're all about the ability to look at ourselves and also the ability to know when to stand up and say, no, you're wrong about me, you know, and just negotiating that distance is so important. Many decades. Um, <laughs> uh, so, but do it now. Do it now. Um, I, we, we are at 535, and I don't want to get, because I know people have other things to get onto, but um, I'm sure people want to chat with the panelists. So I want to say, Hala, Pam, Erica, Claire, thank you so much. You guys have been great. And the book. Robin Rom is the editor, and Norton has some ARES, and thank you all so much for being here. Thank you for listening to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.